1: We're all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this.
2: All right, everyone. So I get to start us off on episode 101, which is super exciting. Oh my gosh. Um,
1: Amazing. But before
2: I get started, I just want to address uh, the fact that, first of all, we've made it past episode 100, which is very exciting. But Yay. also one of uh, my friends and who just happens to be a patron of the show sent us a lovely, lovely gift. A,
1: ca- a care, care package. package
2: of sorts. A, bear a package. care package. There, a bear. A bear package. package. Um, of just to congratulate us on the fact that we made it to uh-huh. episode one hundred. So, Amanda.
1: Now we say a a bear package, a bear package. because it's it's a package it's of a package gummy bears.
2: Of yeah. Pineapple flavored gummy bears.
1: Pineapple. Oh. That is so cruel. Is very cruel. Amanda, you know us so well and you know just right where yeah, to kick. Yeah, right. Uh, exactly
2: what we would hate. She's good at that.
1: Amazing. But on the she is we really have happy the best for us, the best just,
2: fans. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We do have the best fans. Uh, so obviously. Those, uh,
1: they, well, put it this way, they will last a long time.
2: Yeah. So long.
1: Essentially a, a nearly bottomless bag. <laughs> because I don't think we're going to eat any, <laughs> any of them.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. I don't even not. want to smell them. They're more, they're more decorative. No. They're decorative, I think.
2: Um, but uh, on the other side, on the flip side, we do have the best fans and we do appreciate all of you for listening the last. 100 episodes so it's been nuts
1: yeah
2: thank you absolutely so thank you so with that i am gonna get us started this week uh in the last 100 or so episodes well the last 100 episodes we've talked about a few times very about various types of defense mechanisms oh yeah and they've been anywhere from specific camouflage to things like mimicry to poison that uh certain animals will c- either collect or create on their own to things playing dead um just so many different types of defense mechanisms here in the natural world but shockingly i don't think we've covered this so i'm i'm gonna okay we- uh, so lots of animals and plants actually will use oil or will spray things in order to defend themselves.
1: Okay. The yeah, most famous
2: yeah. one, which somehow we've not talked about, is uh probably the skunk, right?
1: Oh yeah, that's that's a big sure. that's up there famous.
0: Yeah. yeah,
2: they're they're pretty famous for their stinky stinky spray that they used to defend themselves. Uh, I, I'm sorry for any who have been skunked. Mm. But um, since many scientists have studied this type of defense, uh, there's so many animals that actually can use this. But one, uh, Athula Atigal at Stevens Institute of Technology and Kipling Will of the University of
0: California, Berkeley were actually okay. part of a team. These are scientists. At first I thought you were I thought you might be going for a Latin name. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's exactly what I thought. No, I'm, I'm like, not. Oh,
1: she's, she's she's going episode 101 right into a scientific name. But no, this is hey, humans. Human, human names. names. Okay. And by
2: the way, I Better. nailed both of those. <laughs> so
1: Okay, awesome. Awesome.
2: They finally broke. It's hilarious. Down. We we
1: both thought that. Oh,
2: that's amazing, truly. But uh, these two, this team, actually finally broke down how a certain beetle uses this type of defense mechanism.
0: Oh. Uh-huh. I, think I might have to take this off my list. <laughs> Between the two of them... it's a good one.
2: Uh, they were able to give beetles uh, the similar chemicals of, uh, that they would find in their environment, like injecting them as well as food that is found in the wild. Um, And Antigal, who was the chemist of this team, uh, was able to analyze the spray that these beetles actually produce and was able to trace the chemicals and the route that the chemicals take within the beetle's body.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay. So like how how they make the specific spray.
2: Yes. Now, lots of animals use sprays or acid to defend themselves. So why this beetle? Why do they want to know where this chemical, where the route is from this spray? Well...
1: Because if it's the one that both Victoria and I are thinking of, it's completely badass. It is very
2: much badass. This is the bombardier beetle.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: Uh, Which is crazy. Uh, It's actually one of... There's... So over 500 species of Bombardier Beetle. Oh, I didn't know uh, it's that. It's not just one. Oh, I did not know. Uh, yeah. It's not just one didn't species. It it's actually somewhere around 400, or no, 500 uh, beetles. Uh, and there's actually 40 Ooh. just in, there's a little, there's over 40 in just the U.S., which is crazy. Oh. But before the Bombardier Beetle expels the substance that it creates, uh. What happens is in separate reservoirs within the beetle's abdomen, uh, both hydroquinone and hydrogen peroxide are in separate reservoirs in the uh, beetle's abdomen. If the okay. beetle is threatened, what will happen is they will open valves into a reaction chamber in the within the beetle's abdomen near like the uh, another tip or whatever near the end part of the beetle. Uh, and it actually wait. Hold on,
1: did you just call it the nether tip? No,
2: the end part (laughs) of the beetle
1: near the nether tip of the beetle. I
2: mean, that isn't wrong. We call it the nether tip. (laughs) Nether tip is
1: (laughs) technically correct.
2: Um, but it mixes in this reaction chamber, and it will expel it almost immediately. But it mixes those two chemicals with enzymes. Which heat the spray up to one hundred degrees Celsius, or also known as two hundred and twelve degrees Fahrenheit, and then
1: also known as the
2: boiling point
0: of water.
1: Boiling, yeah.
0: (laughs) You know what this reminds me of? It's hot. It reminds me of those uh, the kind of epoxies that you can buy at the hardware store that have the two tubes side by side Mm -hmm. and the different ingredients, and then you mix them and they become very sticky goop.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. Exothermic an exothermic yeah. reaction Yeah.
0: yes. They do get hot. So. Exactly. Oh, I'm
1: sorry, my nerd is showing. <laughs> I tucked <took> that up.
2: <laughs> oh, good. It's Go still on. there. Uh and then they forcefully yeah. expel uh forcefully expel this spray towards whatever it, that was threatened. And they actually there is an actual specific tip um on the butt of the beetle uh where the the nether, the tip. nether we've, tip We've established this. Uh yeah. That can direct it and aim this spray. In some species, it can uh, direct it anywhere around uh, two hundred and seventy degrees. Oh wow! I'm
1: struck by the, I guess, observation or just gratitude that humans don't have this ability. <laughs>
2: right? Like, and uh, not only maybe, is it they maybe... expelling, are they expelling like a hot substance at something, but they're Expelling a hot acidic sumpt- substance. Hot acid. Hot acid. Yeah. I mean... Right at something.
0: We have. I hate to break this to you, Kirk, but we have uh, weapons and tools that do more <sighs> or less the same thing.
1: I know we do, but like, just the just the, if someone gets a little heated, you know, at a bar, instead of swinging a fist, all of a sudden someone's shooting hot <laughs> acid at you. Seems like an escalation. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Although maybe bit. if you if you knew everyone had this ability. Everyone would just chill out a little bit because their risk <laughs> would be higher. To, you know to, you know I don't know, ticking someone like off. Like how you know?
0: porcupines and skunks are actually very chill animals.
1: Oh, one hundred percent. Maybe, maybe you know. Yeah. Skunks are just sitting there doing handstands, chilling out.
0: No, exactly.
1: Actually, no. That means that they're like aggravated. So don't you see a, <laughs> a, uh, skunk, a skunk doing a handstand? handstand don't away. go and like tickle their belly. No, no, no. no. They are not. They yeah, are. They are not chill. Mm.
2: Now um in this in some cases actually um this when the beetle sprays this particular acid out that's boiling it actually has You're been right. shown that it will even save them if they've been swallowed by a frog
1: what Oh, imagine! Yeah, imagine that hot, boiling acid shooting all over the inside of your yeah, mouth and mm-hmm. spit it out too. Horrifying! Oh, one hundred percent.
2: To the point where there actually was another study done. Um, the study is called uh, "Successful Escape of Bombardier Beetles from Predator Digestive Systems." Uh, it was done in Asia um, by from uh, Shunjin Sugara and Takia Sato uh who were actually fed these beetle these beetles to common toads uh just more or less to find out what would happen like they had noticed the phenomenon but okay. they wanted to see how effective it was well sure uh each of the frogs or each of the toads were um fed these beetles and 43% of the swallowed beetles uh were vomited back up and it wasn't just oh, like immediate It was anywhere from 12 to 107 minutes later.
0: Oh. What? Wow. Did they survive? Did the beetles survive?
1: That's yeah. The
2: beetles that were ejected were still active. And 93% of the beetles that were vomited up lived at least two weeks after the experiment finished.
1: Wow. Wow that's amazing rachel isn't
2: it so oh cool oh my
1: gosh thank you uh, for bringing that into my life that's awesome
2: just it's so effective it'll make your predator literally vomit you back up because you're just spraying this hot boiling acid quite
1: quite a while later <laughs> yeah too. It, wow.
2: and apparently like they Did were you say a
1: hundred minutes
2: 107 minutes that's some serious indigestion
1: Oh yeah, it was I mean? I wonder if they tried several times, or if they're sitting there for like you know an hour or so, and be like, you know what I should do? I should get out of here.
2: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, like that quite a few of them were nuts. covered in mucus, which suggested they were literally in the digestive tract of the sure. frog, or right. of the toad, rather. Yeah, and
1: that is hardcore.
2: Ah, s- oh. I can't imagine like. And I guess we could, uh, famously, uh, Charles Darwin actually was the recipient of a spray from, uh, one of the bombardier beetles. Cause he was collecting beetles oh. somewhere and, uh, he documented, um, he was documented or he wrote down, uh, he didn't want to let one of them go. So he put this beetle in his, like between his teeth. No, no, yeah. no. and he, well, he didn't, D, don't do it. <laughs> he didn't know, he didn't know so right. he went and I put it in between his teeth and then the uh. it was a bombardier beetle so it just happened to spray boiling acid down his throat.
1: Oh. <laughs> 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 that is that is exceptionally fantastic. Oh. Uh. Yeah,
2: I just for episode 101 I just wanted to talk about this absolutely bonkers beetle. Uh <laughs> They're Sweet. absolutely insane. They're not very large and they mostly feed on like small insects and like detritus and such.
1: They'll fit beneath your between your teeth apparently. Uh, yeah,
2: absolutely. They're like two inches, maybe max. Um, okay. But they're really cool and just that defense mechanism is absolutely insane. We didn't know actually up to uh, until like three years ago. Uh, so 2020 um, to date the show. It's going to be great. Um, yeah, in like May 2020 we the scientists were able to come out and like okay they have two separate chambers and then a reaction chamber and this in that reaction happens. chamber uh-huh. it immediately gets expelled out so that way it doesn't harm the beetle because like if those if
1: it's like mentos and a diet exactly
2: <laughs> <laughs> like if they were combined at any point within the beetle like the beetle would be harmed but explode so. <laughs> potentially yeah.
1: boiling explosive acid yeah. wow <laughs> wow thank amazing. you amazing yeah That is exceptional. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you so much.
2: So that's what I have for you all today. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria.
0: Hey, we want to thank the newest member of our Society of Strange patron group, Kristen. Thanks for joining, Kristen. Thank you. Thank you. She's our first patron of the new year and if you dear listener want to join as a patron you can head right on over to patreon.com/strangebynature. Thanks a lot. Hey, we're back. So, I want to tell you about a scientist named Ernesto Gianoli. He's a Chilean and he's a plant ecologist. I mean, and yeah, totally. Uh, One day about maybe a little more than 10 years ago, he was taking a walk in uh, one of the temperate rainforests they have there in Southern Chile. And he was walking around and he noticed uh, a shrub species that he was familiar with. Uh, It's known as arayan, and it has pointed leaves, pretty normal shrub as he was Mm -hmm. gazing at it. Yeah. He realized that there was another plant with pointed leaves that looked Almost exactly the same, intertwined with the arayan, but the <gasps> arayan had thicker stems, and the other similar leaves had a thin stem. And upon closer inspection, they were in fact different plants.
1: I mm. heard a it- Okay. Yeah.
2: I, I, Coincidence if it, if it or not is what I think it is. I'm gonna have to take it off my list. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, after uh. Curiously observing this for a while, Ernesto realized that the thinner stemmed leaves were actually a plant that he was familiar with. It's a vine called, um, trifoli- fol- trifoliata. I think in Spanish it would be pronounced boquilla, boquilla so I'm going to say it that way because that's probably the way Ernesto says it. Uh, anyway, the Boquila mm-hmm. he was familiar with normally had blunt-tipped leaves instead of, uh, pointy tip leaves, and they looked a bit different generally. That was a little strange. But then, Mm -hmm. looking around at other nearby plants, he realized that boquila was twined around other types of plants as well, and that whichever plant it was nearest to, it seemed that its leaves had changed shape to mimic the plant that it was nearby.
1: Shut I'm going
0: to have to take it off my list.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That this is Awesome. This is, this so is cool. uh, such an exciting episode. We're starting uh, the second hundred episodes real strong here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I saw this story and I was like, this is amazing. This has to go on the show.
1: Right? So Ernesto awesome. was,
0: yeah, he was very intrigued. And together with one of his students, uh, Fernando Carrasco Ura, he investigated further. So it turns out that Moquila is an extraordinary and unprecedented mimic. Mm-hmm. So. Ernesto and Fernando did a survey and found 45 individual bochila vines associated with 12 different host species. And in around 75% of the observations, the leaves of the bochila vine mimicked the shape, color, size, and several other features of the leaves of the plant that they were closest to. Uh-huh. Wow. So cool. Yeah. Even more amazing, the leaf shape of one individual Boquilla plant could change along its length as if, if it were near more than one t- other species of host plant.
1: Hmm. That's cool. That, oh, I was just wondering that. So like, if it started growing under one and then grew out into the one next door, it would like change to different shape leaves for the one yes. next door on the same plant. Gosh. That's crazy. That's
2: that's really cool and And it includes like lobes and things right
0: yeah it could change the number of lobes it could change its color its size its darkness uh that's crazy please
1: tell me they have a hypothesis on like how this well
0: we'll get Uh, there um okay but one other cool thing is that it was actually it didn't even have to be in contact with the host plant It just was mimicking the leaves of whichever plant it was closest to.
1: Okay, sure. Which is
0: kind of...
2: Well, that's crazy crazy, because if it doesn't have any contact with what we consider its host plant, then how does it know?
0: Exactly. How does it know?
2: Because it's not getting nutrients or things (sighs) from it.
0: Right. Okay. Tell us more, Victoria. Well, just as yeah, a little. I have, I
1: have sort of a theory forming in my head, but I'm really curious or a hypothesis. But.
0: Just as a little background, there are other plants that mimic things. Um, so we've learned on this podcast about plants that mimic insects. Like mm-hmm. I, I covered the, sure. the memorably named warty hammer or orchid in episode 25. <laughs> yes. Shaped like an insect From- Yeah
1: from australia yes
0: from australia um there are some other orchids where the flowers mimic the flowers of another specific flowering plant in order to attract pollinators but it's like this one plant looks like this one other plant right (laughs)
2: um yeah but that's just one other plant
0: exactly um it's like sort of typical Batesian mimicry and there are also cases of unintentional selective breeding by humans where weeds have come to resemble the crop plants mm-hmm. that they live near.
1: But... Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, you selectively are pulling out the ones that look the most different. Yes. Mm-hmm. Makes sense.
0: Um, bokila, bokila is the only plant known to mimic mimic multiple other plant species. And so... The scientist's hypothesis, which they found some support for in this study, is that it does this in order to avoid detection and being eaten by herbivores.
1: Okay, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Mm-hmm.
0: So they, they were able to see that like leaves that were mimicking the leaves of other species were eaten, uh, had less damage from herbivores than leaves that were kind of out in the open or that were up against like a bare trunk of a tree or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um... But even more interesting than the question of why the plant does it is how how, how does it do how it? How
2: does it do it? I want to know. Well, I mean, I kind of know because this was on my list, but I, I want to hear you tell about it. Well,
0: this is <laughs> this is pretty much unknown at this point. Ernesto and oh, Fernando hypothesized that it could be due to... Um, Basically, chemical signaling, volatile chemicals released by host plants that the bocula detects through the air. Mm -hmm. And there is some research on the ability of volatile compounds to trigger responses in nearby plants. Although nothing, you know, specifically about changing the leaf shape of those other plants. Right. Uh, And their other hypothesis uh, is that there's some kind of horizontal gene transfer happening, possibly with... Um, like, viruses as a vector. So, like, say a, Whoa. a fly that would be crazy. transfers a virus from one plant to the other, and, like, the vi- viruses have this known property where they can kind of take up a little bit of DNA from one host and then transfer it over uh, to the other host. Right. That's something that can right. happen. Um, so those are, the, those are their two hypotheses about... How this is happening? There was, however, uh, a paper published in 2022 recently that suggested something a little more out there. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: The authors,
0: the authors, did an experiment where they claimed that Buchila mimicked the leaves of a fake plastic plant in a laboratory.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that was what I was wondering too. Is like, what if you start putting it in your other stuff? What would happen? Like plants that it had never encountered before? Yeah plastic ones would definitely be <laughs> on that list, I guess.
0: So they are claiming that this is evidence for plant vision. Which <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of this theory before. Um, this actually dates, mm-hmm. plant, the idea of plant vision dates back to the early 20th century. There was an idea by um, an Austrian biologist named Gottlieb Haberland that um, there are certain cells on the surface of leaves that are kind of lens-shaped and, and clear, basically, and they can mm-hmm. act as very simple lenses, and he called them ocelli, and he, he mm. proposed that they could project sort of images, if you will, onto photosensitive cells on the layer mm. of cells below. Um, and there were, like, a couple small experiments around then, cool. and then it was kind of dropped. Um, mm-hmm. But there is a resurgence of interest in this... Uh, suggestion There's a small field uh, called plant neurobiology <laughs> whose practitioners okay. believe that plants have structures that act as some kind of neural network and okay. use something so, like chemicals for signaling in a similar way to neurotransmitters. Right. Mm-hmm. And they believe that there are brain like structures in the roots that could potentially process information such as visual images. Now, these if if that's okay. what it turns out being, these,
1: I will be yeah. blown away. Oh, one hundred percent. skeptical, but
0: these folks are it's decidedly. Oh, uh, sorry, what, Rachel?
2: It's good to be skeptical, but uh, like it's definitely a a hypothesis that needs that skepticism and needs to be tested. Yeah. But like, if it does, right. if that is true, that's insane. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I would love to see the uh the the plastic, you know, leaf thing replicated because that would be yeah. mm-hmm. bonkers if someone can reliably replicate that. Uh whew, well, wow. needless
0: to say these these plant neurobiologists are decidedly outside of the mainstream of um botany. Mm-hmm. Right. And or any science really. Uh and there's a lot of skepticism <laughs> from mainstream scientists about their work. And specifically this study, you know, some of the articles I was reading, there was some criticism of the methodology and saying that they hadn't controlled for other variables that could be affecting the leaf shape and so forth. You know, I don't really have enough background information to judge how the seriousness of those (laughs) concerns, methodology, Mm -hmm. methodology flaws or whatever. Um, But I mean, the fact remains that we really don't have much, if any, evidence of exactly how Bokila performs this <laughs> amazing feat that it does. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I think further experimentation is definitely warranted with this. But it's very cool to think about as a possibility.
2: Oh, 100%. Woo. I think it's also cool because this particular plant can, like, even on the same vine, change the shape of the leaf, you know? Like, yeah, that... I feel like that doesn't that I, doesn't I want, happen.
0: Yeah, it's obviously doing something know, that we do not understand. Well, I
1: wanna to know too, like is this is this just selection on a leaf level? You know, like those if are, are, are leaves being pulled off and then new ones are growing and the you know, like the most obvious ones get trimmed off and they're like, Well, let's try this shape. Nope, let's try this shape and it just keeps Ugh. on sort of changing or But that would be I'm, I'm sure really rapid
2: like rat that would be really rapid selection, though, especially for a plant. It would be. Like,
1: I don't mean on a genetic level, though. I'm just like selecting for certain, you know, we, we see it in plants all the time where like you have uh, a large leaf gets eaten off and a smaller one grows in its place. Mm-hmm. Right. Like so when you have replacement leaves, they're often not exactly the same as the first ones that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm assuming they've looked into that and they've been like, no, that's not what's going on here because there's so many choices there's like 12 different leaf shapes or something so yeah how would you know which one to do yeah Crazy. well i want an update uh victoria when we learn more totally episode 201 we're going to have to talk about this well my
0: uh, <laughs> my sources this week were uh, the original paper that i was talking about leaf mimicry and a climbing plant protects against herbivory which was published in may 2014 in current biology um the 2020 Oh, I said 2022, but it was 2021 paper, um Bochella Trifoliata mimics leaves of an artificial post plant artificial plastic host plant, um, published in Plant Signaling and Behavior. And then a Vox article by Benji Jones, which was kind of just um talking about uh how, how Ernesto discovered the the mm-hmm. phenomenon and everything. Amazing. That is what I have this week. Uh, we are going to take a little break, and when we come back, it will be Kirk to wrap things up.
1: Okay, this week I bring you a story of epic Loporophobia.
0: Loporophobia?
1: Is, uh, is that
0: being any, afraid that the of, Joel of butterflies?
1: Oh, some, some interesting guesses there. Uh, it might help if you know your constellations uh, and your Latin. Uh, the clue is right there in the name. Laporia is, of course, of course, you guys, the, the dative singular form of uh, Lepus or Lepus. You know the, that constellation? Yes. Oh. It means hare or, and that's H-A-R-E, not H-A-I-R, <laughs> or rabbit. So okay. Leporophobia is the fear of hares and rabbits. It's not a fear I have. I find them absolutely adorable. They're really cute. Uh, I don't. Cute. I should point out, find them adorable when they destroy my yard, mm-hmm. and I don't find it adorable when my dog tries to eat their babies. But when well, they are not being a terror in my yard, or taunting my dogs, or spreading lice, they're really quite cute. I
2: <laughs> mean, have you seen uh, a, a whole herd of jackrabbits, the North American hare? Because having I lived mean, not, in North, not da- a herd. Having lived in North Dakota, I've seen like yeah. Thirty of them in a group, and it's kind
0: of scary. Oh, I have not seen Ooh, that.
1: Well, that may that may play into into the story I'm about to tell you. <laughs> uh, so, speaking of being, you know, scared, I think what first comes to my mind about being afraid of rabbits is naturally Monty Python and the Holy Grail. One hundred percent. So totally. As hopefully many of our listeners know, you know, King Arthur was turned away by the killer rabbit of Knarabog. Or Caner Banog, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, in one of the most g- gripping, terrifying, and blood-soaked scenes in cinema, uh, <laughs> it is of course <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think the rabbit's the one who was uh, the poor one in that scene. Well, I mean, it, uh, okay,
2: yes. If technically, I I was thinking more afterwards, like the a- the actual rabbit apparently it was stayed dyed red like
1: it was. <laughs> oh. It <wasn't> great. <laughs> oh, well, that's not great. Um, So as ridiculous as that whole story is, um, I have sort of like almost a real life version of that event. It didn't involve King Arthur, though. It involved Napoleon Bonaparte. So let me set the scene for you. Okay. We're in the French countryside. The year is 1807. The Treaty of Tilsit has just been signed, ending the war between the French Empire and Imperial Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, elsewhere in the United States, the Act Prohibiting the Importation of Slaves was passed. Mm-hmm. Aaron Burr was indicted for treason. That one seems topical for some reason. <laughs> uh, and the first international, or, sorry, first internal combustion engine is patented. Uh, this is also the year the famous French zoologist uh, Louis Agassiz was born. So a okay. lot going on. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. All this is happening... Uh, it's summertime, July to be more specific, but I'm afraid the exact date of this event has been lost to history. But Napoleon was in the mood to celebrate, uh, so he ordered up a rabbit hunt. Okay. And his chief of staff, Alexander Berthier, was tasked to like set up this this rabbit hunt, right? I mean, that's and, uh, one uh, way to big...
2: celebrate. Truly,
1: like a rabbit well, hunt. I mean, that's that's how that's that's how he decided to do it. Rabbits things, are tasty. Okay. Uh, they are. It was a different time. Different time. And um there was gonna be like a luncheon and a hunt. I'm not sure if it was a luncheon and then a hunt or a hunt and a luncheon. Maybe the luncheon was what you were hunting, I'm not sure. But all like the, the military bigwigs were invited and whatnot. Now, to be clear, unlike uh Monty Python, this is not a story about one killer bunny. Uh Berthier Berthier or Berthier probably, uh collected as many rabbits as he could he as he could find and reports uh in, in the history very widely. Um I can tell you it was somewhere between 100 and 3,000 rabbits.
0: (laughs) 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 That's a range. What a range. A lot of rabbits.
2: (laughs) What do you, I wouldn't know what to do with 3,000 rabbits? That's.
1: Yeah, you were afraid of 30 uh, jackrabbits. This is 3,000 rabbits. Uh, And I guess when the emperor tells you, uh, you know, he wants a big hunt. You it's give like him, go big or go home yeah. you, don't, you don't slack off right you kind of have to So these rabbits were caged uh, they were caged around the perimeter of like a big grassy field and the idea was that napoleon and his crew of beaters and gunners would like stir up the rabbits hiding in the grass and then take pleasure in slaughtering them mm-hmm. yeah as you do apparently uh this was high entertainment at the time and once every everyone was in place uh, the rabbits were released to the hunt, they all cried. Probably. I don't know. It'd be in French, and I don't really know what they said, but Release <laughs> the sure rabbits. it was an exciting time. Allons-y. Yes. Um, yeah, the hunt did not go as planned.
2: Oh, did it not? Instead of
1: running away or cowering in the grass waiting to be gunned down, the released rabbits all joined forces and charged straight at the hunting party. That's amazing. Uh, at first, uh, the men thought it was hilarious. Oh, look. Oh, the rabbits are running toward us. And then they kept coming.
2: Yeah, because there's hundreds at least 100 to 3,000 rabbits. And
1: hundreds. Yes, of rabbits oh. charging toward them. Um uh, So reports are that the rabbits swarmed <laughs> the whole group and started swarming around Napoleon's legs, literally climbing up his jacket. Okay. And he's not not pleased about this obviously uh, there was too many to shoot uh, and it was too close <laughs> quarters to start like you know shooting you'd be shooting your your buddies and stuff mm-hmm. so they were forced to like pick up sticks and try to start beating them away <laughs> Napoleon apparently was trying to like hit them with his riding crop and you know, away away uh, reportedly the coachmen were trying to like crack their bull whips to like scare these rabbits away nothing was working to I no avail like they were just being overrun you know
0: what this reminds me of uh What's that? Well, you know, I, uh, a number of episodes back, I told the story about locusts and grasshoppers, how grasshoppers are just sort of unassuming, yeah. mild-mannered, went on their own, and when in large mm-hmm. groups, turned into a ravening horn. Mm-hmm.
1: Terrifying, yeah. Uh I, I will admit, I studied French in high school, and my, my, my high school-level French is, is very rusty, and I... I don't recall exactly how to say, run away, run away, <laughs> uh, in French. But uh, I imagine Napoleon gave some sort of order to retreat. Uh, Napoleon start, actually ran away. He took had to take refuge in his carriage. <laughs> but that apparently was not even, even good enough. According to historian David Chandler, here's a quote for you. Uh, With a finer understanding of Napoleonic strategy than most of his generals, the rabbit horde divided into two wings, poured around the flanks of the party and headed for the imperial coach. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's getting so, a taste of his own medicine animals, from rabbits.
1: Yes. Uh, these animals were relentless and they seemed to want Napoleon. <laughs> uh, a few apparently even made it inside his carriage. Uh, Napoleon literally had to retreat and have his carriage run away uh, to escape <laughs> the fearsome bunnies. <laughs> So, <laughs> a funny historical anecdote here. What was going on? We don't really know for sure. One theory is that Berthier, uh, feeling pressure to produce a prodigious number of rabbits for the emperor, didn't go out and trap wild rabbits, but instead sent his men to buy as many rabbits as possible from local farms, which would make sense. It's a really quick way to get lots sure. of rabbits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been kept in cages without you know food for, for a while. As everything's being set up. They're probably hungry. And when they were released... They all ran after Napoleon thinking it was mealtime on the farm. They're like, hey, look, humans food. And so like (laughs) hundreds, maybe thousands of them charged (laughs) at the humans for a free handout. Uh And uh, I cannot imagine the sight. Well, pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, This story is to be found (laughs) uh, all over. It's been repeated many, many times throughout history. Uh, the, The quote I found uh, from that historian was actually from a, uh, an article in Mental Floss. But I just, you know, when I first heard about the story about Napoleon, his big loss to a um, a horde of rabbits, I knew that at some point it had to come here to the, uh, oh, the Strange by Nature show. 100%. Because it's one of the stranger <laughs> nature stories I've heard. <laughs> the day Napoleon was defeated by bunnies.
2: Oh, my. Uh, most of the time people think about it, at, I think of Napoleon, his defeat of, like, Russia, going against Russia in the winter. Nope, he was defeated Yeah, like, like by Waterloo,
1: not Watership Down. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's where it com- <laughs> oh, down to Oh, boy.
2: <laughs> but instead, rabbits. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, that's amazing. So well, you guys,
1: that's all we have this week. Uh, thanks for being here, and uh, we'll move onwards with uh, the next hundred shows. Yeah. yeah.
2: Thanks, everybody.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye bye thanks everyone for listening to today's show be sure to subscribe new episodes drop every wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners if you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review that would be great it lets other lovers of the strange discover the show you can reach out to us on social media by searching for strange by nature podcast on twitter facebook and instagram you can send us an email as well our address is contact at strange if you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.